Welcome to Tactical Permaculture. I've worked on projects ranging from the poorest to richest clients, from inner cities to suburbs to farmlands to remote wilderness, from the eco-war front lines to celebrity backyards. In over 25 years of service to the earth and the community of life, I've learned that in the fight for sustainable survival, growing is half the battle. Please go to tacticalpermaculture.com to read my blog, watch my videos, view my photos, access web applications, and click on the join membership link to access exclusive features. August 6th episode, August 6th. August 6th, 2023, episode number 76. Um, Please bear with me as I'm going to work through some notes that I developed today while listening to the um, Yale Open Course uh, Philosophy of uh, of human nature i believe is the is the philosophy department and it's 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 a uh, it's a course on human nature bringing together a synthesis of um the more ancient philosophical texts and thinkers and modern cognitive science and modern scenarios that help us understand and merge and, and juxtapose these different um traditions of of approaching human nature and whatnot um i'm very impressive i'm 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 really enjoying it and uh there there have been a couple of episodes or a couple of sessions so far that have really been apropos of this um war and peace kind of studies track that i'm on now more than ever due to the state of the world the geopolitics going on in the world that have shifted my my focus quite a bit and had me pivot towards my own war college as it were um, because I don't want to be in the dark I don't want to be living in a fool's paradise of ignorant bliss and utopian pacifism Um, I want to be informed I want to be getting, I want to be building my own daily briefings and I want to be filling in a lot of gaps in my my understanding of how the world works and how it's wor- worked for a long time because it was easy enough just to kind of make blanket statements in a, in a, in a, a less volatile, well, really the less volatile, my entire life being less volatile, volatile to the last couple of years where the threat of nuclear catastrophe is greater than it's ever been in my lifetime. There was a potential of it during the Cold War, but the threats were not as brazen as they are in this moment. And the the trigger happiness of 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 a number of folks in the theater of war right now means that uh yeah live every day like it's your last make sure the people that uh you care about know you love them and 
book up on military history and arts of war and pick a side and start training and be ready for anything that's my that's where I'm at that's my philosophy and so <laughs> I'm in position to do that in my own way I'm on my own behalf on my own recognizance on the tip of my own spear and I'm the king of my own nation as it were on private land which gives me a totally different relationship to the state than when I'm a renter or I'm in public space doesn't mean I'm a reservation or a sovereign nation or have any treaty but my treaty is my my treaty is my uh my the deed to my property and my my dues to the uh to maintain that treaty or pay my property taxes other than that if I obey the codes that I'm in with my zoning there's not a lot of interaction superfluous frivolous interaction or risk or liability or even oversight so this is this is as close to being a nation state of one as as it gets in many places in the world unless you're a seasteader in international waters but that may not go so well for you if you get attacked by pirates and the navy is the naval the allied the allied navals navies of the world are, are not are not within earshot of you so i get the bonus of being protected by the national security establishment of the united states and i get to have relative peace from police terrorism and as long as i'm on the right side of the law i don't have to deal with being stalked by feds as it were so trying to just strike that balance be a good citizen on my best behavior and stay out of trouble and in my little domain i i care to be a an asset and not a liability in the grand scheme of national security and that's why I'm talking right now that's why this show exists is because it behooves every i would say every citizen of the free world if you want to put it like that i'm not the biggest champion of democracy because i i carry the black flag if you know what i mean green and black flag more accurately but if i have to pick a side between dictatorship and democracy then i will choose democracy as corrupt and as problematic and as corporatized as many of them may be and as and it's important to understand the grievances grievances of those who are not in the the sort of <clears throat> dominant democracies and that are outside of it or maybe have a different approach to politics but but aren't themselves an evil empire maybe they're just trying to get by there's a lot of nuance out there but for anybody in the world who does care about freedom and any of the principles 
that democracies aspire to uphold and maintain. We have to have an understanding of defense and at its, at its best and not just look at the worst aspects of the transgressions and violations and betrayals and cor- corruption of the defense industrial complex wherever you find yourself or that type of corruption is happening the a theoretical understanding a theoretical approach to defense at its best national security is one way of putting it the, these are all these are all vocabulary terms and just areas of study that i that i i just brushed off in my youthful um disdain for anything establishment and I was a utopian pacifist but a militant anarchist who thought that the anarchists could win a revolution by fighting riot cops in the street and uh, <laughs> and, and maybe I thought that the, the military would be so disgruntled with the system that they would join us but um train us and then join us but everyone in their little 20 something teenage 20 something mind is a total narcissist thinking they're the vanguard of the revolution whatever it might be and that was me I was one of those types and um, thought I had it all figured out and now I'm a little more humble and a little more willing to give credit where it's due and I'm going to give some credit not by name but by category but I'm now very intently studying some of the critiques of the shall we say um Well, I, I'll put it this way. What, find, what I find the most engaging right now in this time in the state of the world is, is the seasoned veteran military professionals with combat experience on the ground and, and up the ranks as far as... Yeah, as far really anywhere in the ranks, but but preferably with combat experience and not just book smarts, but those experienced veterans of whatever rank who have arrived at a critique of the military industrial complex without being radicalized by Marxism or anarchism and that their prerogative is national security, and they see the military-industrial complex as destabilizing and jeopardizing and threatening national security, and they see through the boondoggles because they were the ones putting their lives at risk in order to build the boondoggle campaigns out across the globe. So those voices are the ones that are the most, that I'm listening to the most intently and by volume 
quite a bit now because they've just got insights that nobody on the radical, impoverished ghetto of the left could ever imagine. Uh, unless they they were veterans and they had drank that gung-ho Kool-Aid and put their lives on the line for what they discovered was, quickly discovered was total BS. Those people... I, I, I would equally respect and listen to, but in general, <laughs> the academic left, the non-combat experience, non-veteran left that critiques the military-industrial complex from book Marxism or whatever you want to call it, to me, it's quite hollow and empty compared to the resonance that I'm feeling with these these warriors who were there and who are there and who are anti-war because they've been in war and they understand the economics of it and how much of a uh, how much of a of a money grab and a land grab and a, 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 a rebuilding contract grab is and all of these perverse incentives they they saw it all and they were disgusted and they can talk about it now and some of them are it's been long enough that things are declassified so they can really dig in but anyway with all that said i'm keen to understand what gives them that posture of just unrelenting like those generals that are getting really old and still they jog or run miles and miles and miles every day you know these like lifelong peak performance warriors always at the ready and listening to them talk about geography and history and the history of just all these nuances and dynamics of events and battlefield tactics and strategies and different doctrines and personalities and eras uh, and just the way that they flow through all of these all of these um, these domains it's it just more and more I, I realize that yeah they may not you wouldn't think of them as nature boy hippie kind of earth-worshipping granola people, you know, going on and on with the pejoratives about about being kind of a down-to-earth, you know, what they used to just call, a, you know, a hippie, but but I realize they, they've, spent, they've spent enough time dug into the, the training grounds and the battlefields, downrange, whatever, and looking at maps, and they understand this planet in ways that uh, even some of the most knowledgeable ecologists don't, which is so fascinating to me because their objective is kill and maim and crush and roll over the bones of the smoldering ashes of the enemy but in the process of pursuing that mission or that objective, they end up becoming these 
supreme naturalists that do orienteering and land navigation and climb mountains and trees and navigate the waters and so much of what we know even about the technology that we have to explore our planet comes from that that martial sort of mission and, and prerogative so I just continue to, to, to try for myself to to steel man these warriors and um, and appreciate and learn from them and certainly learn from the ones who are very anti-war and very disgruntled and very much hesitant to engage in frivolous war because they know it so well and they know that it's the only sane position is to be totally anti-war. Yet, you can never turn your back on it. You can never risk atrophying as a fighting force. You have always got to be training and prepared and evolving and counter-intelligencing, if that's a word. But basically, you can't, you can't just declare peace because you feel like it and live in a fool's paradise of utopian pacifism even if you hate war. In fact, the more you hate war, the more you have to train for it. That's the paradox that they have to reconcile and, 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 and live with and have nightmares about. And work so, so the rest of the, or so all of the civilian world can basically be armchair quarterbacks or not even care and have no opinion because they're in such a bubble of of uh, being in a playpen buffered by warriors where they don't even care or think and they're just whatever, yeah, pay my taxes and yeah. Happy to feel safe enough, whatever. So they're either complaining or they're quiet, but not many are that really appreciative and I'm learning to be more appreciative and I'm learning to understand more now more than ever what the um, how to how to simplify and and replicate and transmit an understanding of a sort of um, a civilian's guide to appreciating the military, not just thanking veterans for their service, which is great, but actually more thinking more deeply and posturing oneself more more seriously, in the sense of being not not a performative, radical militia, but a a a silent. If, 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 uh, yeah, if what is it? The, if special forces folks are, are silent professionals, then maybe civilians should be silent hobbyists. But the idea is like you're not being that flamboyant, you're not being that performative, you're not trying to draw a lot of attention to yourself or be real loud mouthed about it. So the idea of first or second amendment rights being attributed to the concept of a well-regulated militia well we don't really have well well well-regulated militias that's not been a a priority 
on the state and local level to maintain those. Maybe there's volunteer fire and rescue brigades of of sorts, or or whatever the whatever the 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 title would be appropriate to the the area, whatever they would like to use for the 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 organizational size and structure name. But there are definitely there's definitely a a modern template, a modern working existing formal, well-regulated volunteer fire auxiliary and volunteer rescue auxiliary. And then with the community emergency response team, you have a little bit of both. And that is well-regulated. There are giant manuals and, and, and the FEMA Federal Emergency Management Organization, or, uh, uh, Agency has developed the the CERT program, and that's taught often out of places like the fire department. So I would consider that to be a very well-regulated volunteer first responder militia, as it were, or for lack of a better word. Um, And yet the cops and the military, any of the armed forces or security And yet the cops or the military, in, in, uh, the, any of the armed forces or security forces, where, whereas they provide sort of hybrid opportunities for different types of reservist um, affiliations and, and registrations, there's not anything like the countries where it's mandatory military service at some level, even if you're not going straight into some battlefield, at least for however long, whether a year or a number of years or whatever it is across the different countries that that do it. But at least in the U.S., <laughs> really, there's uh, There's a lot. I think there's a lot of problems with the fact that it's not a, it's not a a uh, a civic duty to go through a rite of passage of becoming a Marx person, and I'm not the only one who thinks that, and it's not the most radical fringe domestic violent extremist sentiment to say that. Yeah, it would make a lot of sense for if we're not going to do mandatory conscription that we have core, uh, core curriculum at some appropriate level where, yeah, unless you have a religious exemption, then in order to pass high school, you have to hit a target and you have to know the rules of gun safety. You have to know, you have to have done a certain number of hours of training and yeah, if there's a way that's rational and ethical to opt out, then let there be that that avenue. Uh, but that's just one example, and that's not what that's not even that's not all of it. There's so many other elements of just basic preparedness. That's why I'm a big fan of the of the 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 real world former military turned civilian civilian disaster 
an emergency preparedness and gunfighting training and mobility training, all the things that you would learn to survive in a war zone, adapting those things back into civilian life and reconciling some of the martialism, if you will, with just what you would get from going to the Red Cross website and being given a list of instructions on how to be better prepared for fires, floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, extreme cold, extreme heat, etc., etc. This whole idea of <laughs> the absence of well-regulated militia and the absence of the... Um, yeah, delegation by the federal security forces to facilitate state and local programs so that you have an entire national population that's fit to fight and serve at any level, at least at an sort of infantry capacity if not beyond and hopefully people would pursue skills that would elevate them above just being cannon fodder as it were but not to be not to uh, disrespect anyone but hopefully the idea for me hopefully the idea is you pay your dues in the infantry and then you grow out and you become more sophisticated with the profession and the skill set if you choose to stay on that path. Obviously, for me, I, I chose to fight in different wars. And to put it simply, I said it before, in, instead of fighting in the global war on terror, I fought in the eco-war against the real eco-terrorists, which are the corporations that are polluting our planet and our nation and cutting down our trees, etc., etc. So I... I got signed up with and joined the, the the ecological militia of the United States, as it were, uh, which doesn't exist. Don't try to... It's not... <laughs> I don't think that exists as an organization. I'm just trying to use broad terms and without saying that I'm affiliated with any exact organization or other, because I'm really not, at least anymore. But... Um, but I fought, I fought in the drug war, and I was on the side of the, shall we say, um, plant drug warriors. And I fought in the eco-wars, and I, I chose to opt out of joining the U.S. military to go fight the global war on terror because I had my doubts about the perverse incentives of the war machine and now, as it turns out, those who fought the global war on terror and who kept their wits about them and kept their balls and survived, I should say, meaning just generally they... Yeah, whether they, whether they, whether they kept their balls or not, or not, if they kept their brains and they survived and they found their heart, then they came around full, full circle to discover that 
Like what I heard recently, it was most likely possible that the CIA could have organ arranged a deal to buy all of our terrorist enemies with gold from the nations that were hiding them rather than trying to bomb those nations into the Stone Age and try to impose Western dem liberal democracy on the ruins and hire ourselves and ingratiate ourselves to do the rebuilding projects in this perverse incentivized um, boondoggle of a couple of decades that makes us look very hypocritical to the rest of the world. But without going on a soapbox around that, I will say, I picked my battles, but I'm still an American. And if I have to defend this nation from foreign and domestic threats, I'm going to want to be competent to do that. And no one is offering me training to do that they would rather offer me handcuffs in a jail cell for even daring to talk about things like this. That's the more likely relationship that I will have or would have with the state, as it were, even using the word militia in a non-pejorative way. So to me, that's a real problem because there needs to be a well regulated militia because what if you have you you either have a well-regulated well regulated militia or you have what no militia which is a problem or an unwell regulated or a dysregulated militia which i think we kind of have uh, we're somewhere in between no militia and a dysregulated militia and we need to get to having a well-regulated militia and we're not going to do that unless we understand and we have our we until until war college becomes war high school and it's part of the standard curriculum, which now I'm advocating that it that it would be, but I'm not trying to run for office and build a platform on that point. I'm just saying, I, I'm like they say, just saying, just saying. Yeah, not not mandatory conscription, but maybe maybe a little bit more mill-ed in high school, maybe just a little bit, maybe with some practical aspects of it as well. Actually, a little bit of tactical PE could go in a lot of directions, but that's not my job to figure out. I'm going to do it for myself. I'm, be, I'm almost, yeah, I'll be an old man very soon I'll be getting older and older and uh, I picked my battles and I, I can't go back in time so all I can do for myself while I'm still of later fighting age as it were create my own war, war college and do my own research and do my own training and train with people who I have affinity with. So with this sort of intention laid out, which I've expressed in many different ways 
over the previous 75 episodes of this, there's been some a few different angles I've thrown in, but this is kind of the the main staple pottage kind of stew of 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 uh, of intention that I've that I've been just kind of reinforcing and and through my studies. So the more the sort of um, if that's the more bland kind of staple food, here's the more flavorful entree kind of more exciting part of where I'm going to go with this, which is actually in its uh, in, in and of itself. Like now, now if you're listening, hopefully you're on board with me for the, the why. That was all in the category of the why in, t- in terms of why it matters why what's the psychology behind set aside setting aside time to be your own war college that was the why and now here is one lesson that I'm developing for myself and that I'm going to share because it's useful for me for me to learn it better as it's fresh in my mind to articulate it in this format and hopefully it's useful for you and it's something that you can build on for yourself but I think it's very for me it's critical that I get this out right now because I just I just uh, encountered very um, useful articulations of of uh, game theory and the prisoner's dilemma adapted to tactics and strategy of war and peace and um, yeah that was done by the professor in the Yale uh, philosophy, human nature um, session today where it was the session titled The Prisoner's Dilemma. And uh, I think a lot of people throw around the idea or the term game theory and I, yeah, I don't know what percentage of people who who you who will drop game theory in a in a sentence or in a conversation who actually took a, a course on it or who who could teach a course on it you know or who could even really define it and if it, it but but the quintessential case study or example that that is the sort of heart and soul of game theory is the prisoner's dilemma and then from that grows all infinite number of permutations that get into all kinds of abstractions of math and social theory and just bizarre (laughs) chalkboard geometrical madness and um i i i did the yale open course the all the sessions of it where it was the sort of the main game theory course 
and it went over just I don't know how many different it would look like a lot of fun for the class because if you were there and you were at your prime and you were fast enough to keep up with everything that was going on in this sort of game show environment that was Ivy League high functioning gifted genius brain freaking brainiac <laughs> nerd game show material I couldn't keep up with not even half of it but I figured at least I will be primed by osmosis to be receptive to it later which was a good choice and I'm glad I did it because this philosophy of human nature session on on game theory <laughs> gels for me a million times better than any moment or anything in that whole entire course and and probably because I was exposed to that course is this one session gelling better but it's also the fact that the way she's the way she the way she adapted the prisoner's dilemma of game theory to a number of other scenarios that are more well and more easily grasped in social theory, social science, and she mapped it onto the prisoner's dilemma sort of grid table matrix, if you were, if you were, uh, as it were, if you will. Um, and she did it in a way across a number of different examples that I was all, that I was aware of, several of them and some of them not, um, but it really hammered it and I and I really needed that because I feel like it's such a useful tool and it can help just efficiently arrive at at a a relatively um a relatively peaceful compromise in most situations if the participants in any given conflict understand that little grid it's like f four cells it's it's like a, a a table with two rows and two columns it's just a grid of four units if you will like a window frame with two squares at the top and two squares at the bottom and it's a square you know it's a square window that kind of a thing so if you've ne if you this is the thing I wanted to be able to for myself and in conversation be able to not so much teach but just articulate and share and propagate the understanding of the of the elegance the mathematical logical theoretical elegance of this game theory tool and when I, you know, by saying it's it's just like the most remedial kind of game theory 101. I mean, it's the most basic. Like I said, the, the permutations of it go on in, in 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 infinite directions. The smarter and higher up the 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 uh, the graduate and postgraduate coursework that that people get to and 
if you go on Wikipedia, you, you see very quickly how abstract it gets, how quickly. But I'm trying to stick with the base case, the smallest functional unit that proves the theory, and then be able to even not dumb it down further, but just simplify it as much as possible. Because the prisoner's dilemma for me, when I once I understood it, yeah, if I took a test on it, I would probably get an A on that test. But it was still was nuanced enough to where if you weren't reading about it, talking about it, teaching about it, or studying it, or applying it every day, you probably would, within a couple of months or maybe years of getting an A on that game theory test, you probably wouldn't be able to describe the prisoner's dilemma at a party without stumbling on some of the nuance of it. And I realized that very quickly when I had learned it, where I'm like, yeah, I get it. I could, I could ace a test on it, but I don't think I'm going to, I don't think it's not structured in my mind in a way that it rolls off the tongue. You know, it's, there's, it's not, it's super simple. It's not that complicated, but there are just some some nuances to the way, some just some little nuances to it that make it kind of feel a little bit more complicated than it has to be. And so what made it extra simple and extra elegant, and I, I may be, <laughs> I may be, um, I'm hoping I'm getting this, I'm, I may not get this, I'm not going to get it verbatim by any means, but I'm hoping I will get it at least theoretically correct, or at least I will get the, how in whatever, however my words um, reformulate this, I'm hoping that the, the structure is sound and I'm not missing a critical piece or putting a piece in the wrong place to where where the structure of this logic collapses and there is no base case there's there's uh, there's no foundation it's just a, it's just a mess um that's my hope and so well i i took some notes i'm going to refer to them and i'm going to try to see if i can make sense to myself now a, a couple few hours after finishing that and um and so basically if you've never heard of the of game theory you never heard of the prisoner's dilemma this is probably going to be the most helpful and, and useful. Well, it'll be the... If you've heard of none of this, then you won't be burdened by the inherent confusing elements that I see in, in, in The Prisoner's Dilemma. So that won't even be, a, that won't even be an issue bearing on, on, on this process at all. Whereas if you, if you have learned game theory and the prisoner's dilemma and you feel the way I do about it to where it's kind of shaky, then you probably, you'll probably be like, oh, wow, I, I, I see how that, I see how useful it is to have a simpler, a simpler framework, a, sim a simpler scenario within the same framework is a better way to say it. And then if you're very sophisticated with game theory and prisoner's dilemma, you might think I'm I'm an idiot and that I'm not even correctly adapting it and that my interpretation of the ad adaptation that was correct that I heard today is botched and and I should be canceled. So 
If that's you, then help me get this right because I think it does matter and I will do a follow-up based on being standing corrected by you. But for now, I'm going to go with it and I'm going to say that um, I wanted to have almost like an art piece that would teach the prisoner's dilemma in almost in like one single frame without the need for what I've seen as, if I can describe it, a, a table, right? A grid of those four cells in a square of two on top, two on the bottom, two on the left, two on the right, if, 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 if you will. And those four boxes represent the four possible outcomes of two different parties or two different people making a decision for one or another possible option. So if there was no if there was uh, if it was completely without any valuation or any sort of um, loss or gain or, 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 or cost or benefit, and it was just completely neutral, let's just say two uh, dating partners are honest enough with each other that they, when they, when they say, when they make this statement to each other, it's authentically true and they're not just playing nice or trying to be a people pleaser and that they're going to resent it later. But actually, sincerely, honestly, they feel exactly the same about Chinese and Italian food, for example, as, as, as a, as a decision to make for what to, where to dine out or order in for the date that evening. And if the cost is the same and the quality is the same and all things being equal, they have equal preference, but they're going to use a sort of... Um, they're going to use a game of chance to sort of arrive at what the outcome's going to be because maybe they're maybe maybe they're not a hundred percent certain that the other person isn't just being playing nice, and so they want to leave it a little bit to chance, but they're willing to accept either outcome, and neither outcome for them, whether Chinese or Italian food, would be anything but very pleasurable because it's a tie for both of them in their mind of which is their favorite food. How about that? Like that's at least they say that to each other. And we're accepting that they're cooperating and that they are able to cooperate freely and they're able to come to this this understanding, yet neither of them wants to, to impose their preference in the moment on the other. No, but knowing that they would both be okay with either option, they're just kind of like, uh, let's 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 leave it to chance. So, 
they have to develop a, a methodology, a sort of game of sorts, a, a mechanism to arrive at that outcome. And they realize, well, there's four potential outcomes if we if we use a grid with four cells that I referenced earlier. And without any value judgment being placed on the outcome, there's just four, there's four potential scenarios based on each of us voting individually for one or the other option. But we've got to arrive at some outcome which is going to be a binary of either ordering or going out for Chinese or Italian. But but in that process, there's there actually ends up being four different possible configurations where one would be that they both vote for the same, they both vote for Italian or they both vote for Chinese or one of them votes for Italian, the other votes for Chinese and and in the opposite of that. So they both could either they could they I'm trying to figure out how to how to put this verbally and and have it actually make sense and fit the model uh on the in that table grid format but basically let's say yeah it's either going to be a tie in the sense that they did or it's going to be a stalemate in the decision because they both chose they did one round of choosing and they both chose the opposite and then then they did another round of choosing they both chose the opposite again and in order for them to to arrive at one, at one solid full outcome where they choose both they have to try again <laughs> they have to try again until they end up voting for the same thing so i don't i don't know i'm not it's not intuitive to me exactly how you would use any any number of sided die to do that but if they were if it was you know something binary even even rock paper scissors but or or heads or tails right something if they if they wrote on a piece of paper or they drew from a hat something something of that I mean, yeah you could you, you would see that if if they if they were to both have to draw from their own hat and each hat had a piece of paper with italian on one side and chinese on the other if the idea is they're going to individually choose an option in in a distinct from each other so that they they both have their own separate hat and they're not just saying okay because then still if it was only one hat with one piece of paper that had italian and chinese on one side and uh, on both sides then possibly whoever was the one who was chosen to pick that out of the hat maybe they were 
uh, cursed or blessed that day or some other superstitious thing happened. It was Friday the 13th or, uh, or they somehow were able to peak. And so in order to make it even more fair, just for the sake of absurdity to try to make, the more absurd I make this, the more memorable it's going to be, at least for me. So I like the idea of the absurdity of drawing the, drawing a binary option out of a hat, but because of a sort of Byzantine paranoia, the two parties are going to say, no, we're going to do it until we arrive at we happen we happen upon the same the same uh type of cuisine but we do it independently by pulling out of our own hat and what are the odds that that'll happen well there's there's uh there's a 50 there's a 50 percent chance that we will tie and there's a 50 percent chance that we will choose the um A match, but what that match is, is going to be a one in four chance. Out of those possible options. So, if I, so I think that, I think that that all adds up. But basically the, the idea is that it gets, it gets interesting when you take two people and two options and you end up with four possible configurations of an outcome that when you look at it that way you might sort it and and conceptualize it and think about it in in, in new and different ways based on mapping that out onto that grid so I'm pretty sure that that all that all that that all worked out. I literally just pulled that out of a hat, that whole thing, because right now I I had no framework. I mean, I had just basically that framework, and I wanted to see if I could adapt it on the fly to eat to to create even more of a juxtaposition and more context, because the real game theory has valuation and positive and negative costs and benefit risk and reward attached to the options that are made. So in this first example that I just created, it was an attempt to try to show just how even if there's no preference and no no one wins or loses, everybody wins no matter what, there's still a, there's still a formal process to go through to arrive at the point where you get to what is called the Nash equilibrium where the a compromise is reached that is logically almost mathematically bound to be the most rational thing the most rational course of action um, assuming that Assuming a few a few presuppositions that that get get murkier the more advanced the 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 theory gets, but to make to me for me to get it to this the, to the, to simplify it even more than the prisoner's dilemma would be to take away the 
just even the idea that there's a dilemma and that there's a prison involved, obviously that conjures negative images and a prisoner's dilemma. Well, that doesn't sound like fun. It sounds high stakes. So the what to what to order in or what or what to uh, order in or dine out to on a date if that's a dilemma it's a pretty mild one although i know that it can lead to some <laughs> some drama if you if you're not delicate with it so if you wanted to be extra cautious and not risk that you could be imposing your will or being too passive because that can be a problem in relationships too but you want to say, let's let's leave it to science, let's leave it to math. And what is the most fair way that we can sort of um, build trust, <laughs> but do it, but do it, do it in this very fair way? Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna look at all the possible outcomes of us randomly choosing. A, a non-preferential outcome and then studying the results and seeing what possible configurations can, can come out of it. And then as soon as we arrive on that, on that, on that match, whichever one it is, we're going to go with it. And that will be a, a, a sort of, a, for me, an example of, of, of just compromise. I mean, Nash equilibrium has these has has more to it than just compromise, because there's nuance and there's trade-offs and what involved uh, and what not involved. But for this very primitive, even simpler concept, it's just a matter of how do you get a decision made that that doesn't preference anyone or anything, assuming that that everything I I I, I set this up with that there is no disparity in the value or the preference of the options. It's just, we wanna, we wanna make it, leave it as, uh, as much up to chance as possible and see what those chances might, what we're gonna be looking at and dealing with. So that option, those, that list of four configurations. So now with that, totally absurd and inane exercise out of the way i'm 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 getting really hungry i'm i'm wishing that i i have some italian or chinese food right now but uh i'm gonna move right along and say that uh so in between that absurdity and simplicity of no value preference or trade-offs or risk or rewards and the and 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 what I feel is a a bit of a more con- confusing nuance to the prisoner's dilemma. What's actually appropriate for this war college that I'm fumbling through right now for myself is this adaptation of the prisoner's dilemma, where the binary options between two parties is simply war and peace, and that those states if you will like a computer science sense of the state of a system of a state of a uh, of a of a of a machine of a computing machine whatever the state is whether it's whether the whether the 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 bits are flipped to one or zero 
if the binary is war and peace and party A can choose either war or peace and party B can choose either war or peace, then while only war while war or peace while war or peace are the only options to choose from, the potential outcomes are nuanced in the sense that depending on which of those two options each of the two parties pick, you could have either both choosing peace, both choosing war, one choosing peace and one choosing war, or that as the opposite or vice versa. So now we get to the next level where, aha, actually, wait a minute, hold up. This isn't just Chinese and Italian food, assuming that the couple favors them both equally. Now we're talking about tactical advantage and tactical disadvantage or the potential to be subjugated versus the power to be the subjugator. So here is the thesis that I have for the modified, simplified game theory. And I'm going to call it, I'm going to call this game the olive, olive branch or berry briar. Game th- this is a game theory that dissolves the duality of war and peace. And so here it goes. If we, if we continue to roll with the idea that there's two parties and they, they have equal, they, they're, they're, they're equally empowered to choose one of two positions that they're going to posture themselves as a nation state. And let's say they're neighboring nation states because that's very apropos of the times geopolitically. But not necessarily. They could be separated by oceans. Whatever, whatever the geographic configuration, what matters, what matters most is just that they are, a, a, let's say all things being equal, let's say they have equal-sized economies, equal-sized populations, equal technology, military, industrial base, potential and whatnot. But if they're, let's say, fledgling states, maybe newly decolonized, independent, um, or they're, they're just arriving from another planet or whatever, these are, these are clean, uh, clean slates in order to nation build, and they each get to determine whether or not they're going to present themselves to their neighbor or their or their their uh, potential whatever yeah whatever this this foreign nation whether near or far their 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 foreign policy their foreign relations international relations are going to be either from a position a war footing or a peace footing and 
in order to understand this more objectively than just how one personally feels about those words and what they and what they what they feel like and 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 what what images are conjured up by them there's a more scientific and more mathematical more logical and algorithmic way to arrive at an understanding that is a compromise where the where, where what i'm saying is the duality of war and peace can be dissolved into into a state of affairs that for most utopian pacifists like i used to be it would be counterintuitive to imagine that this is appropriate but now i understand it and this is why it's so powerful for me in this moment because now i feel like the most simple way to 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 what's the word um the deconfabulate or or uh i guess uh um deconflate yeah that's what i don't yeah to deconflate warlords with warriors and defense from imperialism or national security from imperialism or colonialism to deconflate those things which they have become very conflated for a lot of certainly western and, or or democracy and communist and dictatorships otherwise modern nation states have often conflated national security and defense with imperialism and colonization right so as someone who is against imperialism and against colonialism but for national security and for defense i want to deconflate those things so that means i want to have a defensive posture that doesn't leave me weak and vulnerable and i don't want to be excessively offensive to where i'm trying to build an empire uh, beyond my borders that so here's where this tool gets very useful in deconflating those things which is it's to me that's very important that that gets done right now because you can't i mean if being anti-war means you don't know how to fight wars then you're doomed to fail and that's what i'm learning from these these typically uh mid to high ranking former military anti-war uh thinkers uh, writers authors speakers now and this is why i feel like what can i how can i translate what i'm learning and simplify it and this is the simplest way so that i found so far that is i don't want to say irrefutable but it's so um it to me it becomes it's it's sensible and visually simple enough to where it can almost be conveyed through a, a just one unit of visual art and not even all of this windbagging 
verbose, pseudo-academic language that I'm using, but that's that's what this that's what this long form is long form show is for. And if anything, I'm a one man intelligence shop. I'm a one man think tank and I'm not forcing anyone. I'm not coercing anyone. I'm not terrorizing or threatening anyone to listen to me. I'm just doing my thing and uh, I'm doing me. I'm trying not to do myself in. But this is, yeah, I'm going to create the art and this is actually going to lead to me doing computer programming and gaming programming of computer gaming, online gaming, educational experiences that teach this doctrine of defensive warriors deconflating the the honor of that path versus imperialism and colonialism so this is me sort of doing a a focus group with myself on what it, on what what this how i'm going to articulate this into a more visual form that doesn't need any explaining it's just very visceral you play the game you learn it you understand it you start training you're a warrior and you don't take shit about it. <laughs> that's 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 the outcome that I'm going to try to arrive at. But for now, this is the theoretical portion of it, of the research and development. So going back to that four-pane four window, the four potential outcomes that have now very different potential effects ramifications for for both parties than the than the dating cuisine scenario is that uh yeah all things being equal in terms of like i said population size economy technology etc if the if the if the potential, if, if, if one way to list those four potential configurations is, is as I said before, I'll just run it down again because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop it up another way here in a second. But, but just to refresh that, war, war, peace, 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 war, war, peace, right? So whether you're A or B, you're going you're gonna to get you're going to end up with one of those four outcomes being the final outcome and it's going to and all the you don't you can't control the other nation states sovereign right to choose what their strategy is going to be and this is more leaning towards the spirit of the prisoner's dilemma in the sense that there's a sort of, um, you could say Byzantine, but that's, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, invoke that right now because it has a whole other set of nuances and assumptions baked in. But, but what this does bake in is the idea that more like a, it's a little more of a poker game when it comes to foreign relations, geopolitics, you know, wealth of nations and power politics and what like and whatnot you may out of diplomacy and a sense of wanting to you know keep some of your secrets your national security secrets to yourself 
you may not be perfectly comfortable or have built the trust to be fully cooperative. So if the idea is one way to characterize that binary when there is risk and reward or, or, or cost and benefit, um, the idea that there are cooperative outcomes and there, there are uh, defecting outcomes. And so if you choose the opposite, you're you're gambling on or if you end up having chosen the opposite where you both chose you you both end up choosing you both make your choice and that outcome ends up being unaligned there's a you take a gamble there because there's a chance now you've opened yourself up to the chance that you made a big mistake because if you if you let's say going so going through them one by one just being un, having the assumption that you you don't fully trust them you can't fully trust them you don't necessarily assume the worst of them, but you can't really expect the best either. So I would call it, it's, it's adversarial by default. And because of that, that default adversariality, you have to be looking out for number one and you have to choose the more self-interested versus the less self-interested option just to be because better safe than sorry that's kind of a good way to look at it so so going through the the, the, the in no particular order going through the possible options let's say not beaten in you're not you're not you're not doing this willy-nilly based on a, a coin toss like the like the cuisine dating cuisine scenario you're doing this out of shrewd national security real application of game theory this really matters we need to strategically know what our game plan is here with this and so let's let's go through the in yeah in in no in in no order of, uh, of, of, of preference, in no, no, um, yeah, in no order of, of preference, I'm going to, I'll just start with, let's say both nations choose a war footing. In that scenario, what, what, what do you get, what do you, what would you get with that? Well, there would be a cost associated with building out that military industrial base, maintaining the forces, obviously training them, cycling through the generations, and then being in a war economy where in order to maintain the arms race, that is the natural outcome of, of the two parties 
not being at war, but being on a war footing, basically being prepared for war, acknowledging its potential and having building a standing army and having that that potential to defend their borders and also to strike abroad if necessary. But but mainly essentially built for for home def- or for uh, for national defense, defending the homeland, but with capabilities of all the domains, you know, space, cyber, air, land, water, electronic information, whatever else, however however many other spheres you wanna we wanna list. But but mainly essentially building up that defense and or that military industrial base versus not and so what that that's that would be on both sides what would that provide that would provide readiness that would provide security provide the uh the ability to 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 rest knowing that the peace that exists is guaranteed by the threat of violence the threat of retaliation the threat of equal force or comparable or or commensurate commensurate force in a conflict that's the equilibrium that is possible or theoretically possible if both sides choose to develop their war their war machines of course that comes at a cost and it's a it's a, it can be a sprawling cost and then if war ever breaks out you have to ask was that war made inevitable by the arms race was it willed into existence by psychopaths who took control over what could have otherwise been a peaceful war machine all those risk factors get are, are now involved so it's not clean and pure and simple that just two nations being warlike though maintaining a tentative peace or a fire-powered fire a fire-powered peace there's there's nuance and trade-offs to that now if the option another option is again going in going in no order here if the if if the next if another possible option for simplicity's sake the other matching option is they both choose peace well that sounds very utopian that sounds very like a, very much like a perfect world and that there is a, an idealism to that but if we're remembering that we maybe aren't the same people, we don't speak the same language, maybe we don't have the same religion, maybe we won't have the same prerogatives, the same 
level of environmentalism, the same um, posture, attitude towards towards our neighbors, whether shared or not shared, etc., etc. We may, even though we're getting along today, and we can both have peace and not build up any military industrial base, any war machine, that sounds good. It sounds quite quite utopian, quite idealistic in a perfect world. But then, but because of all these, the reality that we don't share a very tight bonded in-group tribalism within within each other, it's a very cohesive position and where we kind of live and let live and maybe don't agree with each other on a lot of levels and maybe don't feel like we are the same or compatible but we're willing to give each other space and remain at peace with each other what happens if one one side secretly starts becoming warlike after they had after they had uh, signed that peace treaty or under whatever terms uh, committed to that path of peace and then that leaves the other the other party always in fear and questioning and wondering whether or not there it's safe for them to be at peace is that really sustainable how can you ever really know what what a paradoxical trade-off to have to make policy around to be responsible for those hard decisions. How much yeah, trust but militarize, you know? That, I mean, trust but militarize. That's the that, that's a dilemma right there. That's where we're getting into this becoming very problematic. Arriving at a compromise that works well for both parties. That's not a scorch earth policy and isn't a kumbaya policy. So the two other options is where it gets even more messy. And that's where you are either... You choose to be peace on a peace footing and, and your counterpart chooses to be on a war footing. There's no... There's not a lot of uh, explaining that it takes to understand why that is very problematic to be voluntarily, tactically disadvantageous in the face of a potential adversary. You would never rationally want to be in that position because what what I would call that position in the way I'm going to name these categories or these four outcomes basically is that you are subjugated. You are the subjugated in a world where nations are armed and your other nations are armed and your nation is not armed. You have a that other nations have a military. Your nations and your nation does not. That you are, if you are not actively already being subjugated, then you're on a list to be subjugated by somebody because you're the low-hanging fruit. You don't have the means to defend yourself or to even feign any kind of defensive capability. You have nothing. 
So you are asking for it, and therefore you are, in what I would call, you are already subjugated. And in the other scenario, the final scenario, which just happens to be uh, last but not least, is the scenario where you have the military and the counterparty does not. Therefore, you are, you can be or you are the subjugator. You get to be king of the hill. And so, rationally speaking, for most very selfish and self-interested, meaning in a qualitative sense, narcissists and warlords and uh, empire builders, dictators, world leaders, uh, etc., who want, who want, who are hell bent on world domination. That's their. That's the world they want to live in. They want to strip away the military prowess of other nations, have the strongest military with the most bases around the world, and have their fingers in as many pots as they can get their fingers into, and have tactical advantage that's hegemonic. And uh, you couldn't guess who I might be referring to, but it's not just one nation state that is operating that way but when i just heard about the number of foreign bases the united states has versus the number of foreign bases that other competing adversarial nation states have it's quite it's quite telling it's quite telling and i don't think that's something to be proud of i think that's something to 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 be very very terrified by the potential for history to repeat of an overextended empire having too many wars to fight on too many fronts that leave its homeland, its motherland, open to attack from within and from without because too much blood and treasure has been over-leveraged abroad and that fringes of the empire have sprawled too far and it is top-heavy and it's going to collapse. So that's why I say bring the guys and gals home. Let's deglobalize, relocalize, and use permaculture to get there. But before I get distracted with a soapbox tangent, soapbox tangent, I want to get back to now. Those were the four those were the four options laid out. And really technically speaking. If we were to be using colors or numbers or shapes on that 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 four pane grid, then those four potential arrangements abstracted from any notion of power dynamics or preference, now you see where it really comes to life, why this is useful. Because you have two options, four potential outcomes that are the emergent property of two parties deciding on which to, which option to choose to go forward with in order to establish an outcome that's a mutual outcome. And we live in a world of mutual outcomes, so 
where did, what what's the meaning of this? What's the value of this? Where is any of this going? At this point, I'm going to take the, take a moment to now sort those four options now that I have now that I have explained in more detail the nuance and the implications of each of those four outcomes. I'm going to simplify it down to naming those four outcomes so that if we sort them in a different order and we start to say we're going to order them from most preferable to least preferable, then it's easy to do that because now we've labeled them. It's not war, war, peace, 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 war, war, peace. Those don't really work as labels to to rank and intuitively instantly grasp the difference between them but now that we've done that work i think we can give them names and i'm so i'm going to name them i'm going to and i'm going to i'm going to start with an order that to me sorts them in a in a a, a self-interested rational adversarial a mindset that's that's strategic and is the trust but militarized sort of prudent preferential ordering and so i'm going i'm i'm going to i'm going to list them by and rank them with most preferable to least preferable given the circumstances explain and 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 then as i name them it'll make sense why those would be ordered the way they are. At least it does to me. So, number one, best option to be the subjugator. Number two, best option, but less best option. So, so the best option, subjugator. The second best option, to be allies, the third best option to be, or sorry, the, the, the less worst option would be number three, enemies, and the worst option would be subjugated. So I kind of, I, I stumbled a bit on that. I, so let me back that up and do it, do it over again. So I was trying to choose the right now, well, now if I say number one, subjugator. Number two, ally. Number three, enemy. Number four, subjugated. And then, it's, that's as simple as it gets. But then to just add the parentheses to that, it would be obviously... The first one is the the first one is the best option. The second one is the the second best option. The third one is the less the less worst option, and the last one is the worst option. So from the best to the worst option for each individual party, in terms of power politics and realism and all that more very gets very advanced and I don't claim to understand any fraction of it 
political science and foreign relations and whatnot, but from the sense of just anybody who plays any board game or video game or game on the sidewalk, the idea of self-interest and wanting to win the game and wanting what's best for you and yours and your tribe and your group, you're going to go through that assessment consciously and unconsciously probably a million times a day. So this is very natural to do. Now, to, now it's worth going into a little bit more nuance and explanation of why you might order those differently. And then also what, what would be in the sense of compromise, what would be the most sensible outcome so that both parties maybe don't gain the most, but at least don't lose the most either. So they risk mitigate and they get to a tactical and strategic equilibrium that's that's not, it's not the best and it's not the worst but it's either the it's but it's but hopefully it's the better it's it's the it's the second best and not the less worst that's so that's kind of the hope that's the hope of this in in a compromise so now it's it's uh, if if uh, if if it's obvious it's obvious that uh, there will never be um, if if uh, between subjugator and subjugated those are the those are the the the, the biggest um, uh, gambles the 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 sort of um, the, the, the opposite of, of a compromise. There, that's a zero sum. That's a winner and loser. That's not a compromise. And that would be probably the least sustainable path forward in the real world between nation states to try to sustain that dynamic. That's what leads to revolts like the, the original revolt of slaves in Haiti, which is very, very interesting study in in uprisings uh, in world history. Um, but yeah, the 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 carrot or the stick, that's part of what these colonizers had to figure out and part of how hegemony works and there's a lot to be said about pacifying the 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 oppressed um colonized indigenous people and I want to pay no um, respect to any of that statecraft I want to again think about sovereign nations with their own borders their own peoples and 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 an understanding between them that while they while while in a in a totally distorted world where their power is infinite and unchecked yeah maybe the best option is that they have the military and the other nation doesn't but that's that's not very realistic and it's not and if they were to try to impose that dynamic it might not last and it could be very unstable so 
really what seemed like the best outcome is is also very risky and problematic because it creates the condition for instability and volatility and so it's it's um it's almost you could also say the most selfish at the top and the least selfish at the bottom or the most powerful at the top and the most vulnerable at the bottom and really when it comes to that mutual outcome whether you are the subjugator or the subjugated that the the inherent volatility of those poles make it so that you're probably going to be rotating those poles from cycles of rebellion and and revolt and revolution and coups right so that it's it's uh, it's actually not that advantageous ultimately after all that a, that a that over time it ends up you end up you would end up discovering that you would you would do better to compromise in a way that doesn't disproportionately favor a tactical a tactical advantage to either to either either nation so so that leaves a discussion of comparing the possible the, the 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 options of the two matches peace peace or being allies i reduced it down to being allies or war war which i reduced down to being enemies and maybe there there could be better words frenemies is kind of where where ultimately we'll arrive at by the end of this but if allies are 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 agreeing to have a, a peaceful footing towards each other that could change at any time and if it ever did i go back to what i said earlier that where i was in my utopian pacifism kumbaya bubble as a as a green leftist and i thought the military industrial complex had to be ground to a halt and swords to plowshares and the entire military industrial complex completely defunded and 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 all that money going to homelessness and and sustainable regenerative agriculture horticulture permaculture etc and just no yeah no defense budget that that's all we'll just we'll just put a flower in the barrel of the gun and that we're done like that was almost as simple as my thinking was for most of my political uh pseudoscience career as a pseudo intellectual i did go to college for a while i did get above 4.0 gpa when i did but i only went i i completed about half of undergraduate credits and i took all the fun stuff the upper the upper level stuff first and i and i ditched out even with almost a full ride which i'm not super proud of but i had i had uh, aspirations as a musician and opportunities as a musician that led me led me out uh, astray from from the academic path but i but I, i i was to me i think i did the right thing i did not rack up much debt and 
I took only the courses that I was really interested in, which was the high-level courses in my my major, was uh, anthropology and environmental studies. And um, so I took those the course oh, I, I, I cherry cherry picked the courses that I wanted from the course catalog. Even got I think at least one uh, mixed postgraduate course in there too. So I, I, I yeah I really I aimed high and I got a really great education for over the course of a yeah of, of about half of a of a of a, a set of credits. Uh, and I left the, 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 what do you call it? Um, not the standard curriculum, the, uh, basically the stuff that you're forced to take, which is just, it's not bottom of the barrel by any means, but it's just the, um, it's all the common denominator stuff. Uh, and, uh, whatever language and writing and math and, I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember what else would have been the, the, uh, uh, the sort of mandatory, the mandatory um, outside of your major kind of, kind of. Uh, there's a word for it. I can't remember what it is, but it doesn't really matter now. But anyway, I felt like I, <laughs> I felt like I had enough of a foundation intellectually to do well at the higher level stuff. So I went for it, and I did well. And I had the GPA to prove it, so that so that's that. But I just a little side note there. Going back to the task at hand, where where the in my greeny lefty days of wanting to tear down the entire establishment and have no military, of course. I had to, at some, in some sense, honest, be intellectually honest about reconcil- reconciling. Well, if we dismantle our military and our enemies don't dismantle their their militaries, isn't that a problem? And then, of course, there would just be any number of circular argument, total bypass, intellectual whistling past the graveyard, but. That's where the revolution is going to make everybody realize that we can just be harmonious and not need to fight wars and not need to fight over land. And yeah, as if your little teenage, college age ideology that you cooked up out of a book and partying with your bandmates and going to protests and you you think your patch and your slogan and your flag is going to unite the world and have them bury the hatchet over millennia old blood feuds around religion and ethnicity and geography and resources and no i mean no nations are built around borders that people fought and died to establish and defend and steal and yeah i would say the more i learn about it the more i understand this is a very thin facade over a state of total war and violent chaos and and i'm willing to reckon with that and be intellectually honest with that in a way that i haven't been before because i don't i'm jaded and cynical and old enough now to know that that's not realistic and i and i need to become realistic fast 
if I want to survive in in this in this world as that facade is becoming thinner and thinner and thinner by the day. Um, so what is that sensible non-warlord, non-war pimp, warrior, defender, non-imperialist, non-colonialist? Well, unfortunately, ranking these, sorting these out again and saying, well, if subjugator and subjugated those polar extremes that we thought were the best or the worst if those are eliminated and it comes down to now which is more sustainable and more realistic being allies or being enemies or both being on a war footing or both being on a peace footing the utopian pacifist in me would have said before, oh, it's great. Hey, yeah, let's just both agree to be peaceful. And that's great. And we'll dismantle everything. And that'll be great. Doesn't that sound great? It does sound great. It sounds great. It looks good on paper. And it frees up all of that material, all of that budget, all of that research and development for peaceful activities, peaceful public works, maintenance of infrastructure it frees all that up but it but it relies on the on on just one simple thing a handshake a a pinky swear swearing on the bible i mean i don't think no i don't think we can really bank on that when it comes to this adversarial reality that we're in so that's where I arrive at the frenemies trust but militarize strategy where I hate to say it it's a love-hate thing to say but I have arrived at that so-called Nash equilibrium which is war war which is both parties in order to not be in terror of being vulnerable to the potential of a betrayal by the other there needs to be a war machine at the ready at all times so that it you're able to speak softly and carry an an equally sized big stick and now i understand why the military budgets of the world are what they are and where it gets perverse and corrupt is when that sensible, reasonable, rational, logical conclusion gets distorted and abused to justify black ops and covert ops and coups and regime changes and democratization by force and all the forms of neo-colonial imperialist endeavors that uh, serve corporate interests and ultimately weaken and disempower the the homeland of the nation states that engage in that kind of militarized misadventure. Now I'm starting to integrate the sentiments and the language and the wisdom of these war fighters who who have lived as tools of that corruption 
and live to become the whistleblowers of it. So that's where it becomes this very fine line. Okay, if we're going to now discover that option number three out of that presumed option of best to worst, option number three, the, the less worst option becomes the most realistic compromise for sustaining, actually sustaining peace. Unfortunately, peace, peace on its own doesn't sustain peace. Militaries sustain peace. It sounds fucked up, and I want to puke when I say that, but I can't deny it now that I've done this back-of-the-napkin analysis thanks to game theory and thanks to this modification of the prisoner's dilemma it really hit me hard and i got it today that is why you teach your daughter if you have one which i don't but i'm a sort of cultural parent more than a biological parent and i've taught a lot of women in my life how to defend themselves and some of them, they take right to it and they put full force into it and they impress me and they, they whoop on my, my focus mitts and, and pads and they learn the techniques and they're 100% with it and I don't have to psychologically, intellectually convince them. For some of them, it's because they've been assaulted and they say never again and I'll take any tool that's ever offered to me and try to master it to be able to use if I ever need to defend myself again and I will never be situationally unaware and I will never let my guard down and I will always be ready to fight back and I'll always be a fierce mama bear for myself and for for my loved ones to break the cycle of abuse through combative readiness. There are women in my life who didn't need me to intellectually sermonize them to get them to be on board and then there are others where they were very flaccid and lukewarm and non-committal and disengaged and not interested. When I walked them through the exact same training, simple 30-minute basic street self-defense combatives training system that I co-developed, which is just very the most simple Swiss Army knife of self-defense tactics that you could ever learn and but you but they're simple enough that you can master them quickly and deploy them for the rest of your life there are the women who really didn't care and they did it to sort of placate me and I didn't bother with them again and they didn't I didn't let them really get very close to me in my life because I only want to be close with people who understand tactical advantageousness and understand the the negative outcomes of tactical disadvantageousness and hopefully not because they learn the hard way like many people so many people do so on that personal micro scale this is where all the abstract all the theoretical all this chalkboard nonsense kind of intellectual self-aggrandizement, if you will, uh, for <laughs> to avoid other words, um, 
where it gets real for people on the street is how do you convince the people you care about to train to defend themselves if they don't care to? And beyond that, how do you build a narrative that allows more Americans to feel very masterful with firearms and not have this, not have their stomach turn the way a vegan or vegetarian's stomach turns when they think about meat or dairy. I don't want to coerce anyone or force anyone to eat meat or dairy. I'm mostly vegan, mostly vegetarian, and mostly raw, but I'm but I but there is a time and place for me. And at this point and stage of my life, it's 4.75 ounces of canned tuna twice a week. <laughs> that breaks what would otherwise me be what what would be me otherwise being literally a hundred percent raw vegan at this point. That's the only the only cooked food and the only non plant based food I eat is that is those two cans of those two cans of sardines a week. But that gives me enough. And I don't have the biggest firearm arsenal, but I am armed. So yes, between my unimpressive firearm collection and my non-carnivorous twice a week one serving of sardines non-vegan diet, I can speak now to both sides because... I'm a little bit of both. I'm actually, yeah, I'm a little I'm a little bit of both. And I'm still more on the pacifist side and more on the vegetarian <laughs> vegan side when it comes down to it, but not positionally just as a matter of fact. Believe me, I would like to have more guns. I would like to have more meat, okay? Not really so much more dairy, but yeah. I have a deficit of guns, ammo, and meat, but I'm not completely starved of it, 100% of either. But with all that being said, the, the analogy goes back to you have people who are tactically disadvantaged and who have no psychological basis to train themselves whatsoever to become tactically advantageous, and there's no one in their life to do it for them, and that's a problem for all nations. And it's a big, big, big problem in the United States. So my goal with this for myself, having gone through this exercise, is to take the spirit that I take to those women who need a little nudge to care, to train to defend themselves, and need a little bit of a conversation about what kind of vocabulary they should upgrade to so they start saying things like, I don't take shit from people who tell me I shouldn't be armed because I decided that I'm no longer going to justify the value of my life to anyone and I'm just going to be armed, be silent about it, be compliant with local laws about it and not get in debates about it and know that it is my prerogative to value my life as highly as I choose to and highly enough to where it is defensible within the limits of the law and the limits of my budget to do so. And those are the 
women and people that I like to have close to me in my life that are not afraid of violence, they're not afraid of guns, they know how to do violence, they know how to fire weapons, and they don't need me to sermonize them to build self-esteem and, and, and cultivate a sense of self-worth that would make them want to defend themselves viciously. And certainly, if they had dependence, be capable as an ethical, moral duty to be tactically advantageous in defense of those who are dependent on them who don't have that choice because they're small and weak because they're still growing up. But if you're a grown person and you're tactically disadvantageous voluntarily, then let's let's start using these tools to start shaking out some of this logic and get down to where we understand that peace is sustained by all parties being not being shy about the potential of combat and it's not the favorite thing it's not my favorite thing to say i want to say that we can live in a perfect world of kumbaya and utopian pacifism and we'll never think about combat again certainly i have a whole thesis about the peace that was prehistoric societies where we have no fossil record evidence of organized violence I would like to say that the bonobos are a template of a primate cousin that are quite peaceful for various reasons and that chimps and, and uh, baboons, for example, um, amongst others, are, are, are negative reinforce, reinforcing models for trying to justify violent patterns of, of organized violence in human society. I, yeah, I, I have I have a whole thesis about a primatological thesis and a whole a whole anthropological thesis about pre-modern, pre-industrial, pre-agricultural pathways for peace. But we don't live in that world. We live in the modern world and we live in a world that's armed to the teeth. And we have to choose as individuals and as nations and as neighborhoods and as communities at whatever level. Like the Black Panther said, do we want to be, do we, do we want to be unarmed or do we want to be armed in this dynamic with being terrorized by the police? Or that are of a, a different race that is a, a, a supremacist race that is occupying their neighborhoods the black neighborhoods they chose to become they chose to get armed and become proficient defensive warriors great example so the way i'm going to wrap this up is to kind of foreshadow the art the visual art that makes all of everything i just said scream without words in, in one simple illustration. And it doesn't even have to have that grid of four or the four different examples, although it could, but it could be in one, it could be one um, 
painting or one photograph or one uh, little mime skit, if you will. But when I started thinking about like what makes people complacent about combat and violence and the military, and, and it's just the idea that, oh, well, peace is good. Peace is good and weapons are bad, weapons are gross, weapons are kind of nasty and gnarly and most of them that actually kill people in hand-to-hand, hand, well, not hand-to-hand, but in close quarters, non-ballistic combat, they're pretty gory, like axes and maces and swords and daggers and all that medieval stuff. Oh, sure, it looks cool in Disney movies and video games where it's all nerfed and you don't see the horror of it. But if you... <laughs> If you watch Braveheart or something of that nature, you're going to have another thing coming. And so we just sort of, in the modern sense, the way a vegetarian has this unnatural, learned, cringe, revulsion, aversion response to the sight or thought or smell of any kind of meat or dairy, that's the way pacifists, utopian pacifists, have become towards weapons and combat. And that's a big problem. So how does that get overcome? And now that I'm owning this defensive warrior posture, now more than ever in my life, and not a minute too too soon, maybe a little, maybe uh, pretty soon is going to be too little too late because I will be too old to even <laughs> be, although I'm surprised some of these people on the battlefield now, I'm not trying to jinx myself to end up on any battlefield but there's some, there's some, yeah, they, they're, they're, they're people who are pushing that age further and further as far as who they're going to draft. And then the, the, uh, the yeah, the, <laughs> the commanders and the generals and all of the ranking folks of all the different just alphabet soup of, of names and, and whatnot, um, some of them are, are getting up there. Some of them are pretty old. So, yeah, you never know how potent you, you will be for how long in that, in that capacity. But for me personally, I want to have an, an intellectual understanding because I have to, like I, like I did the sacred ritual transgression after being a strict vegetarian, if not vegan, for many years, when I started to reintegrate some forms of meat that I thought were the healthier, least processed, least, most ethical, um, that, that was a ritual transgression that I engaged in mindfully and consciously and with, with a, a spiritual, emotional, ecological, intellectual, economic foundation basis for it that was well worked out so the same goes now for me to relinquish my pacifism and say i'm going to be a defensive warrior not just a martial artist who does self-defense training as a hobby but as someone who is really going to start to learn 
and build my own war college so that I can speak the language, know the language, and be useful in war should I ever be called upon to do so. And that's a responsibility that was not intrinsic to going through high school. It wasn't a mandatory conscription year or years of my life. It's an opt, an optional, auxiliary, self-directed project that I'm doing for myself and I'm sharing in this format. And so for those of us who, probably those of us who were pacifist, green left martial artists who are now thinking, oh shit, yeah, maybe I own a gun or maybe I have some experience with guns, but I really need to be proficient in in in, in gun fighting. And I need to go pay people from law enforcement and military backgrounds and private security detail backgrounds who have real-world experience and who have a kill count under their belt, literally, Not to, not to fetishize them, but to be humbled by them and let them actually build you up and train you up within the limits of the law for civilians per jurisdiction, but with a standard that would make the forefathers proud of there being material to organize a well-regulated militia with, which I don't consider myself even at the halfway point towards that goal. But someday, before I'm totally decrepit and, and just unable to even stand, I would like to have the dignity that says, I did not serve in the armed forces, but I had enough respect for them after careful consideration as I, as I reached my later potential fighting years to say if I'm if I'm if I'm physically if it's physically possible for me to be a competent civilian war fighter then then I'm then within reason I'm going to pay for and 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 apply myself to whatever training I can get my hands on in order for that to be a pillar of my existence that's um that I that I'm proud of and that's reliable that that my nation can rely on and that my neighbors can rely on and that if I were to have dependents which I don't but if I ever did that they would be able to rely on as well I think that's very moderate it's not extremist it's not threatening and it should be as american as apple pie and that's not no, it's, but so, so, and it's not just, yeah, owning guns and knowing how to operate them, and it's not just trying to um, dress like you, dress like you're all kitted up and have all the gear, and be a weekend warrior or, or, or something of that nature. More to the point of being uh, being a, a, a war college of one. That's where you start to understand the theory and the, the history and you appreciate how important it is that we maintain vigilance 
and readiness because of how horrible things have gone wrong in the past when we make miscalculations in war or in preparation for war, et cetera, et cetera. But, the, but, but having more of a acknowledgement that we are not really in a stable global peace that actually there's a term of art, a nuance they call, I think it's called sovereign conflicts, where basically it's like there's a lot of places embroiled in civil war or civil conflict around the world. That are, so there's not that much peace in the world as it turns out. But we think there's peace because the big nations are not in world wars, at least kinetically, although we are economically and on the cyber domain and we're gearing up in many ways that if somebody slips on a banana peel at one of these demilitarized zones, World War III is gonna possibly be over within minutes because of all the nuclear subs able to turn the lights out and block out the sun with the, yeah, uncomfortable things to think about. Yeah, I would rather think about I'd rather go through the process of, of, of transgressing my fear of understanding what it means to have a, a defensive warrior posture and to build a defensive military that's healthy and fit and contained within the borders, relatively speaking. They're like learning about that having to think about things like combat, casualty, wound care, and the difference between a civilian first aid kit and a a combat first aid kit and things like that. I'm willing to push through that potential squeamishness because the much more squeamish thing is to think about irradiated nuclear tidal waves blasted from off the coastline that destroy coastal cities of a nation, a target nation, within minutes with no ability to shoot down missiles because it was done underwater by submarines and creating a force of destruction that isn't fire but is deadly radioactive water. <laughs> like that's scary to think about. Or the nuclear winter that would result from the fires after the blast, so much material being turned to ash and kicked up into the atmosphere that the fires we're seeing now would be dwarfed uh, in the extreme by orders of magnitude and at that point sun gets blocked out all vegetation dies temperature drops so whether or not you survive all of the ill effects of radiation the simple uninhabitability almost overnight of the entire planet for however long Those are the worst possible outcomes
and it's it's all very paradoxical but to me the uh yeah b- being oblivious to it all is the most dangerous position to be in because while you are drunk on prosperity and your civilian population is engaged in culture wars and your cybersecurity is for shit and you're chasing shiny things like all the shiny things that we chase and the more dedicated, more sophisticated, subjugating forces that are taking advantage of our tactical disadvantage, that's what terrifies me the most. They're digging in and inching into positions of nuclear and cyber checkmate that are scarier than they've ever been before in my lifetime. And the more I learn about it, the scarier it gets. And all I want to do is at least know that if, even though I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I have no military prowess and I have no position of decision-making or war fighting whatsoever. But if it was, but if it comes down to, you know, the red, or the, the red dawn moment, am I going to be obese and, and an easy, soft target to neutralize? Or, I gonna, or am I going to be fit and I'm going to be a hard target? Am I going to be hard to kill? And I think I owe it to the nation that, despite all of its faults, it allows me to exist. It allows me to own land. It allows me to study and learn and think. And they may be, you know, <laughs> whatever level of 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 eyebrow raising I do in my little lane doing what I do I'd like to think that I'm an asset and not a liability to national security and that by working through this material and translating it and being a delegate now a liaison from the disgruntled warrior defender intelligentsia that if I can be a liaison from their intelligence back to my green left roots that the green left can become more tactically wise stop fighting street battles with the cops and start to develop more of a sophisticated national security mindset as an, as eco warriors that's that's what i'm trying to do here and and so the uh yeah the visual piece i guess yeah there's two things and so that visual piece is how to make how to make all this come together in in a in a in an image that's haunting that could be embedded from looking at a billboard for a split second to me it's the image of this the reason i got derailed in that tangent about the touchy feeliness of peace is that it's 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 we we tend to feel so good about the idea of peace we kind of think like oh okay well yeah it's cool not to have a military um because we're peaceful and you know most nation states are peaceful even though as i just said that's actually not really <laughs> the truth and peace is just the time that 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 warring nations retool their their war machine um so no we don't if 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 we look at that game theory 
if we look at those game theory options and we go, oh, well, yeah, being, being allies and choosing the peace-peace option, no, that's just, that's very easy. That's, that, that's cute. It's easy. It doesn't turn my stomach. There's no, there's really, it's the easiest sort of um, cleanest, most, most disnified and nerfed utopian perfect world living on a prayer whistling past the graveyard of the options is that oh we'll just be peaceful and we'll just hope everyone else will be peaceful and we'll trust each other to be peaceful and we're going to trust and demilitarize now i'm saying no that's a mistake and how do we convey to the woman on the street who doesn't care to learn to defend herself and the nation that doesn't care to build a standing army and train its citizens to be competent with weapons and with with wilderness survival and basic tactical and strategic wherewithal without glorifying war without lusting for war not glamorizing it, but acknowledging the need to be competent and to be tactically advantageous and to be ready. How, how do you convey that? How do you market that? What's the marketing message? So I, it, I arrived at the idea that when I was working through these options, I'm like, okay, how about, we, how about I say you got peace, you got, the, if the options are peace and war, what if we say options are armed and unarmed? Okay, that works. But the thing is, people are so freaking biased and have such normalcy bias to where they think, well, it's okay that everyone's unarmed because it's okay if just the police are armed. That's okay. I don't, I don't really need to be armed. Uh, that, 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 that way I can sort of have this cognitive dissonance and fall back to the peace, peace option, even though that, that is problematic because of the vulnerability and the susceptibility to betrayal that that leads you to that 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 opens you up to so i so i thought is there a more is there a, a is there a more uh haunting and and immediately um sort of what what has more punch what has more sting as a visual a more of a visual visually impactful binary set of two options because armed and unarmed unless you're unless you're really into guns or you're really you know macho or whatever and you're going to think oh yeah of course yeah being armed that's that's badass of course I'm going to be armed I'm not going to be I'm not going to be what they say is the P word. I'm not going to be unarmed. But most people who are not into the militant aesthetic, they're going to be like, no, you're a wingnut. <laughs> Want to be Rambo or you're just a macho man or you're just a, you know, aggro, alpha, jock, whatever. I don't need that. I don't need to be armed. I just, unarmed is fine. Peace is fine. Well, well to me, that's where that the marketing fails and you get people complacent again, living in normalcy bias, situationally unaware, setting themselves up to be victims of nation states 
and of sexual assault assailants, right? So here's what I think is a more beneficial, useful, poignant, packs a punch, packs a sting visual, which is that what if we say that the two options are not war and peace? Oh, they're, they're not Italian food and Chinese food. They're not war and peace. They're not even armed and unarmed. It's shackled and unshackled or restrained and unrestrained. But I think shackled or unshackled is probably the best visual attention-grabbing, haunting way to set this configuration up to where what it really looks like if you were in peace-peace is that you're both shackled and therefore you have this this debilitated state of being hindered to do violence the way we shackle prisoners so that they can't run and they can't fight back and they can't escape they're severely limited in their ability to do so so yes they're they're nerfed they're incapacitated and there is a there's a cost to maintaining that peace because if one of them breaks those shackles <laughs> the one who didn't is fucked right so that's the way i look at it now i'm like yeah i get it some people they don't want to be armed they don't want to be armed they're fine being unarmed but would you be fine to be shackled as long as everyone else was shackled because now that everyone's shackled we can we have peace that's is that okay with you probably not probably you would want to be unshackled what does that mean oh well uh oh well that means i might swing my face or swing my <laughs> swing my fist and it might my right to swing that fist that ends at the beginning of someone's face now i have the freedom to possibly intentionally or accidentally swing that fist beyond the scope of where i'm free to do so which is where another someone else's face begins now we have politics now we have these dilemmas that that arise from the freedom to possibly do violence but but the 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 laws and the security infrastructure within and among nations in order to allow for there to be the freedom to wield weapons and to weaponize that 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 it's rational ultimately and it is the reality of the world we live in whether you like it or not we don't live in a world where we all chose to be in a form of peace where in order to have any guarantee of that peace we're all just going to live in shackles <laughs> we chose a world where we're not going to live in shackles which means it's potential anyone has a potential to weaponize themselves anyone can become a terrorist anyone can join the military and the, and be part of the armed forces and wreak havoc on 
enemies abroad at the stroke of a pen from the commander-in-chief. The potential for weaponization and violence is taken for granted and certainly it's exploited and it's corrupted. So the whole point of all of this is to say we need to get we need to clean up our military industrial complex but we can't we can't uh, have a backlash and overextend and pendulum swing in the opposite direction to where we end up shackling ourselves while other people in the world, other nations in the world are not going to by any means shackle themselves and they're training hard while we are training soft, if at all. Every day that, uh, every day that Captain Willard slept in a, whatever hotel room waiting for his mission, he got weaker. And every day Charlie was squatting in the bush with a bowl of rice and some rat meat. <laughs> not, a, not a lot of R&R. He was keenly aware of what it means to, to get soft just as an individual warrior. And uh, from that point, the last thing I'll say to wrap it up in a more wholesome, down-to-earth and and on-brand with tactical permaculture sentiment, one of the other analogies or applications of that game theory uh, grid that the professor in the Yale course shared was one where she said, and it was totally great, and I am so glad that I caught it. I did listen to it twice because I, I was so cooked yesterday that I it didn't sink in. I'm glad I listened to the whole thing again today because it really struck me. Again, just sometimes I have to prime myself, you know, um, because it doesn't all come natural to me, this more abstract thinking. But but she brought it very way down to earth and, and she used an example of, let's say you have you have two gardeners and I'm, I'm going to put it in my own words a little bit, but, but try to maintain the structure of it. But she said, let's say you have you have two gardeners and their neighbors and one of them is growing tomatoes and the other one for some reason at some point has a lapse of a lapse of uh of 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 good relations and decides to walk over to their neighbor's tomato garden and steal a tomato and then the tomato the tomato gardener catches them or 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 suspects them or discovers it and they in retaliation go over with their pitchfork and start tearing up and destroying the garden of the offending neighbor who stole the tomato therefore you have lord of the flies morbid anarchy total meltdown collapse of society of biblical proportions etc the end of the world as we know it so what do they do they decide to each build their own fence. They're going to build fences around their garden and be mortal enemies forever after. But at least there will be a, 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 a sort of mechanically facilitated enforcement of the hard fact of 
peace through the implementation of these bordered, secured boundaries that are that are not impossible to defeat, but a deterrent enough. And they both did it against each other. So that, so it's subtle, right? So they learned the hard way that utopian pacifism, kumbaya, could have been so great and synergistic to live in peace and not rob and retaliate and destroy each other. And they decided they would compromise on not the best and not the worst, but a workable peace through the implementation of something tactical, which is building those fences. And now I thought, I was like, well, she just basically gave me what I'm going to borrow and, and attribute to that course this I don't want I just don't like to drop names in general because I don't know what the AI bots are doing and I don't want them to ever you know I don't, they don't need to have a feel they don't have they don't need to know about me or have a good or bad feeling for me it's it's simple enough for me to cite that it's Yale and that it's the open course and it's the philosophy human nature prisoner's dilemma episode and, and it's a woman giving the course and if you want to go out and I don't need to name I don't need to attribute the name I can attribute the institution that's fair enough for this usage right now reference but what she provided for me is an adaptation of the prisoner's dilemma and beyond the the simple war and peace application she actually adapted it for me to use in, in this tactical permaculture sense where that actually teaches the entire thesis of what I'm trying to do with this entire rebranding of myself, dedicating myself as a, as a, as a almost lifelong utopian pacifist on the green left who has having a midlife crisis in the, in the beginning of World War III and saying, oh my God, I'm waking up from this delusion of utopian pacifism and realizing that I'm a wimp and that I am not a, a skillful warfighter even though even though I fancy myself a, a a plant drug warrior and an eco warrior with with the uh the bona fides that I've had some ex-military mentors along the way no that doesn't that doesn't cut it that doesn't cut it that does that doesn't equal real world combat experience or real war college degrees and i'm not i i can do war college study as a civilian but i'm not about to go and be a volunteer on any battlefield right now there's not a lot of wars that i that i actually know of that i'm truly that i know which, that i truly know which side I would be on. Um, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. And no one's no one's offering me to go and 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 earn real world combat experience. Uh, and I'm I'm not about to join any extremist group to to accelerate that that access to that kind of experience. I just want to be 
and and am becoming want to be and am becoming and will be as competent as I can be doing dry runs and not being the not being the the worst the lowest liability and probably not being the greatest asset but being somewhere somewhere nice in that in that middle and so along the way for me it's a matter of adapting permaculture design thinking to paramilitarism and to tactical advantageousness from hand-to-hand self-defense street combat at the gas station (laughs) whether you're in a poor neighborhood or rich neighborhood now it doesn't matter the plague of the zombies of all kinds gangster zombies homeless zombies people with nothing to lose who don't care to die or go to jail who are willing to fucking stab you without thinking or shoot you without thinking to get whatever pennies you have in your wallet or steal your car or whatever that encroachment of the zombie apocalypse it's it's everywhere and so whether it's street self-defense or 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 war fighting being a, a competent gunfighter ready for war it behooves us to to not be um completely uh, a deer in the headlights when it comes to violence uh, at any scale it's looming on all scales and only those of us with experience navigating that the the law enforcement on the streets military who have fought wars abroad those of the of those folks in uniform who are willing to train civilians that's again where this comes back to and what i would like to bring to it is the permaculture design thinking where i'd say how can we permify the firing range how can we permify the military base how can we permify the forward operating base how can we permify everything so that energy that goes into it is so that it can be as non-toxic and regenerative as possible so that we can be sustainable warriors and not unsustainable warriors because of how toxic our fuels are how toxic our paints are how toxic our 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 uh, munitions are etc 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 and if and wherever i can find that edge to create a tactically superior product of any kind of course legally of course with the right permitting and the right laboratory scientists but i but i do believe that bentonite is more powerful than 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 dynamite or any other explosive when it is used tactically and strategically in a permaculture design a tactical permaculture design and i'll and i've talked about that before i'll talk about it many times again but yeah i, w- I but yeah the the uh the the totally non-explosive basically totally inert mineral bentonite clay to me that is the most powerful secret weapon for any nation building itself and defending itself in the world and building sustainable 
peaceful relationships amongst uh, the the nations that it that it forms alliances with. I'm just going to say that that's one dimension of where where I'm trying to bring permaculture to the battlefield on all on all fronts at all levels on both sides of of enemy lines at home and abroad their applications and so where I'm going to leave this coming full circle with this concept that I'm working on with this brand is that with great appreciation for that that uh, that garden feud application of the prisoner's dilemma and of game theory here's how I would add to it and this is where it where it lands on do you uh, the olive branch versus the the berry briar if the fact is conflicts are going to arise and it doesn't it's not intelligent for there to be for there to be excessive weaponization of a counterparty and lacking weaponization of yourself that there there should be a balance of power a balance of weaponization and for that to be done in a permaculture informed manner then those two gardeners if they were to be lamenting this dilemma that they're in through their metal fences their barren metal fences looking at each other's garden going you know what man if these fences weren't here our gardens could co-mingle and actually synergize and become even more productive but then are we back to square one where we have more to fight over is that is that um a fool's paradise leaning towards utopian pacifism again or is there a way that the function of the fence that the form of the fence can follow the function of it and when we could say how do we not sacrifice all potential ecological synergy by building fences that block the flow of ecology when all we're trying to do is dissuade each other from pilfering from one each other from 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 one another well where's the nuance how can we put our design thinking cap on and do some biomimicry and go how does nature do it how would nature do it in a way that creates more ecological niches more potential for synergy and more more numbers of of uh, of of cooperative interactions amongst the all the trophic layers of life in the ecosystem from the soil up to the sky to the upper canopy of a, of a forest how does a a tactical dilemma of the potential for war between neighbors how can that be more nuanced than just two metal fences that block off each other's gardens and really flatten the ecological potential and limit synergy well i can think of if if the if those lamenting warrior gardener gardener warriors now at an impasse 
where they have a far less productive ecology between the two than they could have, and they could have spent that fence money in a different way. And they said, we're going we're gonna to consult with the tactical permaculture people, and what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, we're going to save you a lot of time. I'm not going to torture you and torment you with game theory and adaptations of the prisoner's dilemma. I'm just going to say function or form follows function. You've both arrived at a, you don't need to remember this, but you both arrived at a Nash equilibrium, which is that it's not the best scenario for either of you, but it's not the worst. And essentially you get to have more peace at night, peace of mind and sleep better at night knowing the fences are up, you sacrifice in the, by the sunken cost of building the fence, that cost an energy, a time and energy, and, 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 and monetary resources that could have gone into growing more, more production. Instead, it was sacrificed to in- install this security measure. In fact, redundant, you both do it because you can't risk one of you becoming the subjugator or the subjugated, so you both had to do it. So the the, the fence arms race, you both you both uh, embarked on that together. But now you're kind of lamenting, and so is there a potential to create a pro-social synergistic value add on top of that grim cold calculus of a Nash equilibrium in the prisoner's dilemma? applied to war, applied to the garden, and the tactical permaculturist says, yes, guess what? I'm going to come over and bring vining edible and medicinal food plants that you can grow that are going to add beauty and, and fragrance and diversity to your dinner table and biodiversity to the landscape and to the to the the natural ecosystem and that fence is which was an eyesore is going to still be there and serve its function and maintain that that tactical balance and that tactical informed peace but now it's going to become a trellis and you didn't have to tear it down it was able to serve its function, but now it's serving multiple stacked functions and it's now growing you food and medicine, creating beauty, possibly some extra shade and cooling effects. And now you have this whole list of value add that comes when you bring permaculture to your tactical installation. And that goes for both folks on both sides of both fences. Now. I would take it even to the next level, which is that if it were possible to intervene in the design phase before they chose the form without thinking about possible multiple different alternative options that fulfill the function in a different form, if we could go back in time or if I could have been there to be a, to be an arbitrator or mediator in that conflict, Or if they were if they were willing to tear the fences down, although now that they're there, may as well work with them. But an even more pro-social, an even more ecologically optimal, an even less costly, 
an even more elegant solution that addressed the tactical, functional need of there to be some dissuasive barrier between them, this is where I would say, let's grow whatever you like to eat or that is preferable to your medicine cabinet, your, your herbal apothecary. Let's grow thorned bushes and berry briars and make it a soul-building and culture-building part of your fabric. You'll sing songs about it. You'll tell stories about it. You'll become master gardeners and horticulturists of the plantings that you do to have an edible, tactical, living barbed wire fence that dissuades, keeps your dogs out of each other's gardens and keeps each other out of each other's gardens. And if you want to create some sort of corridor for diplomacy where you have garden parties and you can walk through that corridor and maybe that's a less costly smaller footprint of the metal fenced area that you can still grow stuff on but if the if 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 instead of having all metal fence for a long stretch of your entire perimeter of your gardens instead you grow prickly pear or you grow blackberry or raspberry or even rose bushes <laughs> the tactical stealth tight tight mesh grown even even possibly uh sort of what's the word um uh um you you can artfully and craftfully weave together plantings of thorned bushes and even different types of thorned trees to where you can create a impenetrable fence that's very dissuasive because of its thick brush and sharp thorns that will prevent that will prevent bad people and and uh, and bad animals and unassuming animals from from going where you do not want them to go and then you could have a you could spend your you could spend that which was allocated to more metal fen dead metal fencing that does nothing other than one thing and you could have a multifunctional stacked function tactical edible medicinal food hedge that's like living barbed wire that's regenerative that doesn't rust out that'll actually live as a perennial and probably live longer than you <laughs> And if you maintain it, it could live indefinitely. And that's a regenerative perimeter that's tactical and serves the function. And you could set aside a small percentage of that budget to have some, if you, if you wanted to do metal, I would do some sort of stone work. But basically, you could create a very beautiful, very aesthetically pleasing, non-prison-like full circle with the prisoner's dilemma you could create a very aesthetically pleasing very rustic stone corridor pathway with some security and some height to it but that gives you the, the ability when you are getting along to supervise each other in your garden parties 
without having to turn your back on each other at night, lest one of you just waltz over and steal a tomato and then and then cause a feud that results in that pitchfork night stealth destruction mission that I that, that started this whole thing off. So hopefully that feud didn't lead to shooting and blowing each other's limbs off to where you built so now you're either gonna build a fence or grow your 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 rose bushes and berry briars and otherwise thorned briared edible or medicinal hedges. Hopefully you haven't got to the point where you've blown each other's limbs off and it's gonna be very slow and pain painful process to get that stuff established. Hopefully you made some sort of peace or that you put up the fences before things got uglier. But we're living in a world where there's a lot of amputees now, a lot of disabled veterans. And for them to mend fences in this ecological manner that I'm speaking of, they're going to wish that that, that that option had been available earlier and that we were settling wars with bentonite and not dynamite and that we were building fences with edible, living, thorn-berry briar bushes, and not is not so much unforgiving concertina wire, and on down the line, until we get to a point where it's not that you're being tactically disadvantageous, or that you're being weak and nerfing yourself and allowing yourself to be subjugated, but that we partner with the natural weaponization that is the, the natural toxins, the natural poisons, the natural architecture of weaponization that most wild animals have built in to their, to their venom-emitting teeth and their and their bites and stings and all of the weaponization that nature is that we that we lack intrinsically and that we have to build technologically my thesis is that using an understanding of this these game theoretical sort of intellectual toys we can get to a point where we understand yes from the get-go, the prudent thing to do for those two gardeners was to have a perimeter that was impenetrable and where there was a corridor that was manageable and penetrable on terms that were tactically mutually advantageous, not leaving either one to be easily subjugated. And that by design, peace is the emergent property of superior not necessarily firepower, but but regenerative leaning on and replicating the the fair fighting that wild animals do in nature and that and, and replicating the fair defensive tactics that plants use 
to generate poisons to protect themselves from predation and to grow thorns to ward off their potential enemies and so that there becomes a balance and nature is in a state of constant war and I'm willing to acknowledge that and (laughs) it's not like I had a bad trip that made me see all rainbows turn jagged and turn into raindrops turning into bombs dropping or something wasn't like some sort of hippie having a bad trip that made me realize that nature is inherently weaponized I get bit and stung all the time and if I don't purify my water I'll get sick there's a million there's infinite uncountable ways in which the weaponization of every form of life even every cell the way that their cells defend and fight and defend themselves and build gangs and militaries to fight. It's called your immune system. There's tactics and strategies at all levels. You can't be in denial of it. If you do, you will be victimized. You will be subjugated. And the, the most evil among us will exploit every tactical disadvantage that exists. So there's no excuse not to be a fighter for your health, for your garden, for your community, for your family, for your nation. But I think we can green the fight. And so that's where I'm coming out. That's where I'm coming out out with this. And yes, let's live in an unshackled world, which means trust but militarize. And remember that haunting image of of a of a a utopian pacifism that re- that that requires everyone being shackled for it to work that's dystopia we can have a dangerous freedom or a safe tyranny i i, I think i'm going to go with the dangerous freedom and just stay fit and and become more proficient with weapons in compliance with the laws and in the spirit of the founders and stay stay well regulated my friends <laughs> stay stay well regulated and stay unshackled and let's let's green the battlefield and the battle cry for me is quite simply growing is half the battle so <laughs> there you go I'm no longer a child playing with G.I. Joes. I'm a man and I'm not a part of any organization. I'm just living and working and growing into this body that I have as a man that's getting older, starting to fall apart. And I can do a lot more with it now than I could playing with the G.I. Joe toy, but I sure wish I could have had a G.I. Joe garden set with G.I. Joe shovel grip hands. And uh, <laughs> that's that's me. That's, that, that's how I'm living out this midlife crisis. I hope you're learning and enjoying along along with me and that, that you are rethinking things along with me uh, and that you have things to contribute And eventually, I'm hoping that this will grow 
in, in, in many dimensions. And, and this will be, I don't know if this show will have interviews ever. I'm a little hesitant at this moment, but the discourse of what I'm talking about, I hope it will grow far beyond me and far beyond my little show and my little quote-unquote brand or hashtag or whatever. I don't know or care for for it to become a quote-unquote movement. Permaculture is already a movement. Tactical is already an industry and a, and a way of life and a science unto itself. But I hope everybody who resonates with what I'm saying will do what I have just done and take other people who are master teachers and fumble through my understanding of what they've conveyed and try to communicate it back to my tribe as best I can. And uh, I don't know that I have a tribe anymore. I may be a lone wolf and I kind of always was lone wolfing it even when I was in tribes, what I would call my neo-tribal affiliations. But I'm going to keep doing it as long as I'm alive and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking for those ways to green the battlefield on all levels. Cheers.